I mean, perfection is, is a construct anyway, isn't it? Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design and much more. There is no pond big enough for our today's guest, Phil Collins, a global leadership coach heading a team of internationally based coaches and facilitators at An Action and Theory. Throughout his career, Phil worked and works with several senior leaders in corporate organizations and specializes in those who benefit from some course setting and course correction. Furthermore, as a director of a London-based management buying company, Phil brings the practice of first principle thinking and its sources of growth, and he leverages a balance between strategic thinking and simple ground-level next actions to deliver performance improvements. We met some years ago at the Alden MBA workshop and we stayed in touch ever since, supporting each other in personal and professional growth. This gives me a chance for a peek behind the curtain to see that Phil loves cooking, uh, much like I do. Uh, his cooking principles that I found uh, somewhere online are embrace risk, minimize food waste and develop the creative practice of working with what is. Phil, so awesome to have you with us today. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> uh, Phil, on your website, you write that you are helping leaders deal with all their stuff. What is their stuff? So uh, there's a book called uh, The Inner Game of Tennis, published in the early mid-70s. A guy called Tim Galway, Galloway can't quite access his name and then he put forward a, a model of thinking which is that performance is equal to our potential minus interference and mm -hmm. it's the stuff that we have going inside us which is the interference which gets in our way so the stuff is the interference the the unhelpful stories that we tell ourselves the beliefs that might be founded on inaccurate data so the stuff is all of that interference that mm -hmm. gets in our way of realizing who we can be you work with senior leaders so i would think that these guys have a lot of things figured out but from what you're saying i'm guessing that they don't <laughs> are they humans like the rest of us they are absolutely human yes right now the the model of leadership is changing quite radically, right? The new generations are coming, they have different expectations, people don't want to stay on one job forever. And uh, the leaders, they they have to adapt to all those changes. So I think that it's a twofold question. Like one is, what is leadership about today? And the second thing is like, what is the stuff that they are battling the most? <laughs> So what is leadership about today? So can we just skip past that question? Because sometimes I don't know what leadership is. Okay. When I read when I read stuff and I hear people talk about it, I think well, I don't recognize that as, as leadership. Mm -hmm. But okay, if you're saying that, that's your perspective on it. And sorry, your second part of the of the question was So what is the stuff that the leaders today deal with? with all the changes in how the role is perceived are mm. happening? So it's typically how they show up. Mm -hmm. It's typically, you know, their self-regard, how they feel about themselves. It's typically their levels of empathy. It's typically their social responsibility towards their team and their colleagues, as well as the wider world. What do you mean by social responsibility? I'm curious. So it just come back to your first bit when we talk about leadership so often it's talked about work context and my particular perspective on leadership is is that there are five elements of leadership we are leaders for ourselves so there's self-leadership we're leaders within our family units our friendship circles our communities and also in the workplace most often it's talked about leadership as the work actually we can be and are leaders in all of those other domains so social responsibility 
is about the consciousness of helping those around us in whatever context that is. If that is in the workplace, then it is our teams, our peers, our reports, our colleagues, stakeholders. If it is in our community, it is whatever kind of communities that we are involved in, whether that's our neighborhood community or whether that's in our local train spotters club, if that's our community. <laughs> uh, so for me, social responsibility is it's about the conscious engagement with those different areas. Rewinding the tape in my head about your cooking principles. And let me just look it up. Like embrace risk, minimize waste, and develop creative practice of working with what is. Mm -hmm. Is it the same thing that you teach the leaders? <laughs> Absolutely, in terms of working with what is. In terms of their own ability to take in the data that's going on around them. And when I talk about data, I'm not necessarily and probably hardly talking about data in classic noughts and ones data. I'm talking in terms of, of data, in terms of what they are hearing, what they are seeing, what they are feeling, mm -hmm. and then and working with that. Most importantly, what they're feeling. It sounds to me like you are much more engaged if you're working with leaders more on their human side rather than I don't know, managerial, maybe that would be a good uh, split. So we'll usually frame it around emotional intelligence and the various components that make up that. Uh, the managerial stuff, you know, if you're talking about the operational or the strategic aspects of their professional lives, then yes, inevitably we do touch on that, but that's driven by their behaviors, mm -hmm. how they show up in the operation or in their strategic activities, it's underpinned by their behaviors. So yeah, it's very much about the individual human person. Mm -hmm. So if you could unpack one more term for me, just so I have understanding, mm -hmm. because you used it already quite a few times, is showing up. What do you mean by that? So for me, the term showing up is how we arrive in a context and how others then experience us. So what we project in that context, that then links into the authentic self. A lot of talkers, less common to talk about authentic leadership than it was maybe five years ago. But the authentic leader is someone who shows up. And for me, there's a commonality that in whatever context they're showing up, whether that's in their family, friendship circles, community work, that there's a commonality, which is them showing up as their true self. What stuck in my mind was the parallel of your uh, cooking principles and uh, what you do professionally. Mm -hmm. And then you told me that out of the cooking principles, you are using the, the third mm -hmm. one, which is working with what is. Mm -hmm. But if it's about changing people's behavior. Yeah. I think that you might not see that you are using the first principle of your cooking principles, which is risk. But if I would be working with you as a leader, I think I would feel that what you challenge me to do would feel risky for me in the workplace, for example. So if my leadership style is based on kind of old school principles like power or ego or yeah position or unique knowledge that I have, I would have to overcome some reservations to change my leading behavior. And that would probably feel risky to me because I wouldn't know if it worked and it's something important to me. So I'm trying to say that in your professional capacity, I think you also have to deal with risk, maybe not on your side, but on the side of your uh, partners. So absolutely. It's guiding them through a risky process where they are doing things that are going to be uncomfortable for them. And whether that is examining some of their beliefs, their belief systems, which is a bit risky about being conscious about who you are and what is prompting your behaviors in, in different situations and contexts. So absolutely, there is risk for them. And Every leader would benefit from coaching. Mm -hmm. Not every leader is in the right place at any given time 
to be coached and open to that risk. And not every leader who is open to be coached is open to be coached in the way that myself and my colleagues work. So yes, risk, I think, is a fair thing. It comes in. It is less about us. It's much more about the client, the person who's consuming the service. When I'm thinking about various, I would say, managers or executives that I met on my path, and I don't want to be gender biased here, but by the situation that we find ourselves in, they were mainly men. What I've noticed is that connecting to their feelings is something they don't routinely do. I remember talking to one executive and he was in a difficult personal situation, but he told me that he has to show up strong mm -hmm. because otherwise his authority will be undermined. So I'm wondering, and I'm not sure that these people I'm talking about would ever be your clients, but I'm wondering if they came to you, how would you begin to convince them that understanding their feelings and unlocking their feelings actually makes sense and it's worthwhile? Well, that's a, well, that's a question, isn't it? Um, most of what we do are, is with leaders who are actually experiencing some kind of crucible moment. So we tend not to do the proactive stuff. In fact, I had a conversation with Rob, one of my colleagues, the other the week where he was saying to me, he's actually done with doing that proactive stuff where organizations sign up and say everyone beyond a certain level needs to have a coach because actually what you end up doing is working with people who don't necessarily want to be there and you can't always lead a horse to water or you might be able to lead them to water but you can't always make them drink so we do tend to be working with the people who are much more receptive because they're in a crisis moment and that's a, a much easier conversation to have about the benefit of exploring some of what's going on for them in terms of their emotions and their behaviors rather than taking someone who is there because they've been told that actually that's a good thing to do and it'll be helpful for your career coming at it at the wrong angle i feel for what we do mm -hmm. there are others who do show up into market and will support those leaders that's not really what we're interested so in a way <laughs> you have them uh, ripe for opening for their emotions and feelings yeah <laughs> or you want them ripe <laughs> yeah i mean we've come across some quite challenging situations one particular comes to mind but yes they are in the main much more open to help mm -hmm. to deal with their stuff than others who are being it's good for your career mm. you proactively go and do this, spend some time talking with these people, this person. Well, much less about that. So the people who come to you, they already asked for help. So they know they need it. So they might not have asked for help themselves. Someone in their organization might have said to them, we feel that you would benefit from some help. So let's have a conversation with, right. with this company and see, let's make an introduction and see how you feel about them, what you think. We get that much more than the other mm -hmm. side. Speaking of bottled up emotions, well, feel free not to answer this question. But I'm really curious. There is a tendency now or a movement, it's probably a better word, to make the representation of genders in the leading position much more close to what it is in real life, right? So to have more female leaders. And of course, we are all equal, but we are all different. And from that context, there is, I'm not sure this is stereotype, but I think there is, statistically, there is truth in the fact that men are less likely to talk about their emotions. Did you have enough clients, both male and female, just to compare what the statistical <laughs> differences are? So I'm laughing because some 90-something percent of people that use our service are men. Yeah. Mm. And the exposing their emotions and sharing them and talking about what's going on, their belief systems, their insecurities, their doubts, all of their stuff is much easier done for them in a 
private one-to-one environment than perhaps in a group context where agar is perhaps where you've encountered people most frequently I personally only work with people on a one-to-one basis. Some of my team will do group stuff, but, you know, speaking from a personal perspective, it's almost completely men. And generally speaking, when they're at that crisis point, find no great difficulty in getting them to open up. There are always exceptions, Mm -hmm. but no great difficulty. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you work with something which is called the ABCDE model, (laughs) which I became a huge fan of after you mentioned it to me. And this is basically about discarding and altering your irrational beliefs. Could you tell a bit more how it works and what's the story behind it? So I came across it when I did emotional intelligence practitioners training back in 2012. And one of the textbooks that we were given and I did it with one of my colleagues, Rob. One of the textbooks we were given was a book called The EQ Edge by Dr. Stephen Stein. And in that, it talks about working with people on emotional intelligence. And that's where I first was introduced to the ABC concept. Uh, what I've since gone on to learn is, is the ABC is actually a shorter version of the ABCDE model, which was, to the best of my knowledge, introduced by a psychotherapist called Albert Ellis, an American chap who sadly is no longer with us, but there are a few clips of him on YouTube, an interesting character. I would have loved to have (laughs) met him. Um, I think I would definitely put him on my list of people to invite for dinner if I could invite anyone past or present. He used that in his rational emotive therapy work, and it's also been taken into cognitive behavioral therapy. We use a slight twist on it as a model from Ellis's original work. But the ABC is that there is an activating event. So we have an experience of something. We then have a belief which plays out. Very often we tell ourselves internally a story of a belief. And then there are consequences. There are behavioral consequences for us and for others in terms of what we feel, see, say, do, and what others feel, see, say, um, do. And as a simple model in itself, that's really good from a self-awareness perspective to start looking at ourselves in terms of our self-reflection, perhaps when we're journaling, doing our reflective practice, to look at different things that have happened through the day or through the week, how we responded to that, what the consequences have been. And that in itself is quite a helpful model, nice and simple ABC. The fuller model, the A, B, C, D, E, the D is for dispute. So can you dispute the belief? Can you dispute the stories that you've been telling yourself? Is there alternative data in terms of feedback? What prompted that story? It might have been true at some point. Someone might have said something to you. You might have had an experience. And on one occasion, that experience might have been true. And that what we can then do is create actually a belief of, oh, well, that, that happened, so that's always going to happen. And then we just tell ourselves a story so it perpetuates and deepens this, this belief. So the D is to dispute that, look for alternative data. And then the E, and this is where we vary from the Ellis model, the E is to experiment. So we have a phrase called action experiments. And leadership for me is a practice. It's like yoga. You never stop practicing you're never there you practice every day and get better and learn and so the e is for the experiments the action experiments where you go back and consciously focus on the next time there's a similar activating event what story what alternative story can i tell myself what belief can i experiment with to see what alternative consequences I then experience Mm -hmm. and then how did that go review that you know can we dispute that was that useful do we want to employ that again the next time and then over time what we can do is form and evolve our beliefs into newer beliefs perhaps that are more helpful to us so that when we show up we're showing up with different beliefs and therefore different consequences different behaviors being demonstrated and experienced by others. Wow, you really got me thinking there. 
(laughs) (laughs) So when you mentioned that there are five aspects of leadership and only one of them is related to work, contrary to the most people associate with leadership. Mm. And then also that it's a practice just like yoga that you can, you know, improve every day. What would be your advice to start doubling in it for the rest of us? Meaning not leaders in a workplace, just a regular person who could listen to this podcast and would like to start playing with this model to be a better leader in the other four aspects outside of work. How would I go about it? So leaders are regular people and regular people are leaders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're all imperfect human beings. Some of the most successful people are some of the most dysfunctional in some of those other aspects of their lives. So to answer your question, for me, it is about the conscious reflection and to once a day, once a week, probably no longer than once a week, to take some time out to reflect about things that happened in that particular context that we're focused on, whether that's our classically we've been talking about work, or whether that's our for ourselves, our friends, our family and our, our um, communities as well. And to do that self-reflection and that self-analysis of, you know, what what did happen? What was the activating event? And what was the story that I told myself? What belief was it that was in play? And then how did that turn out, you know, consequentially for me and for others? And doing that reflection, and I would encourage people to write that rather than type it. You know, technology is a wonderful thing. And I have a phrase which is just because you can doesn't mean you should. (laughs) And just because you can journal in technology doesn't mean that you should journal in technology. And for me to write stuff, it is externalizing it, that physical, emotional act of externalizing it also actually makes it a a more accessible for us to come back to. We can look at our notes and we can experience the emotion on the paper that we had experience and reactivate the moment that we were writing about much more readily than we can when we've tapped it into an app on our phone, as helpful as some of those things can be. So I think that would be my advice. Once a day, every couple of days, once a week. Just take some time out and do a bit of self-reflection and write it out. What does self-reflection do to us? So the self-reflection gives us the opportunity to learn. It gives us the opportunity to, when we have awareness of what was going on, of making a choice. Is this something that I want to challenge myself and tackle and take a bit of risk on or do I just want to put this away for the moment because I don't have the appetite for that at the moment but I know what it is and I know it's there but for the moment I'm going to deal with something else so that self-reflection increases our self-awareness and gives us the choice of what we choose to tackle at any given time. So you're saying it's okay to put some issues on the shelf for a while. It's not that you should feel forced to deal with them immediately. So I've got two thoughts on that. So absolutely, we benefit from exercising some self-compassion in recognizing what we are actually capable of, of doing. If we set ourselves up with all of these things, oh, that's a really unhelpful belief that I've got there. Um, And that behavior doesn't support me well in whatever context, the work or in my family. You know, we can all write out because we're human, we're imperfect beings. We can all come up with all of these different things that we might like to be better. But to choose to put things on a shelf, know that they're there, but know that one day we might get around to choosing to tackle them is a good thing it's unhelpful to try and tackle everything all at once and then if we play a work view through this you know there's a book published by the franklin covey organization the four disciplines of execution and in it they talk about how organizations will try death by initiative we'll try and do lots and lots of things and end up doing them really poorly and in the book they talk about doing one, two, maybe three things to a point of excellence and that doing those one, two, maybe three things to a point of excellence will take the organization further, substantially further than doing all of these other initiatives, which inevitably ends up being done badly. 
Mm-hmm. And so from a human perspective, when we bring it back to ourselves and our self-awareness and what we choose to work on and self-compassion, if we choose to do one, two, maybe three things that we're going to focus on in our leadership practice, then we're much more likely to achieve them and move ourselves forward from a developmental perspective much further than if we try to do all of these other things all at the same time. In addition, if we tried to do all of those other things all at the same time, most likely we would end up having an unhelpful conversation about ourselves, about how crap we are, how bad we are at doing all of these things, which then gets us into this unhelpful loop and you know damages our self-esteem our self-regard and then impacts how we show up so it seems like the underlying condition in order to start with this or maybe not in start but to move forward is somehow to have this feeling of being uh, adequate or good enough for the moment so acceptance of who we are in the moment and being comfortable with that to a point where and I make no judgment on people who choose not to challenge themselves and take a bit of risk and try and develop themselves if someone is interested in developing themselves and being better as a human being and and as a leader in whatever context it is being comfortable with who they are and yet having a focus on I'm going to work on this next and then see where I get to with that and then look back on the shelf and what are those other things that I might choose to challenge or has something else emerged in the interim that I'm going to focus on next in my leadership practice. Our friend Steve and our guest on this podcast a few seasons ago, he mentioned recently in a conversation that when you dig into these kind of issues about yourself, when you're trying to understand yourself better, it feels a little bit like Pandora's box. You open the cover and suddenly like everything goes out and then you just in this middle of a of a storm of your own inadequacy. And it's scary. So like I can imagine that for a lot of people opening this this cover, this deck is freaking them out. So I'm sure that it is for some. And again, I, th- I come back to, you know, our experience with clients is, is that those people that are in their crucible moment or experiencing some kind of crisis in their, in their leadership are much more willing to deal with that sort of thing than those people who otherwise might be jogging along quite comfortably through life. And I make no judgment to them that they choose not to because it is all a bit uncomfortable and it is uncomfortable doing some self-reflection and looking at one's own behaviors, proactively seeking feedback from others to give us data and information that enables us to be choiceful about our behaviors. It can all be really, really uncomfortable when people have very well-tuned defense mechanisms to all of that stuff you know you will have come across the people for whom you give feedback to and bounces off them almost as if they've got a shield (laughs) up it's completely deflected away from them because they've created these behaviors they've created this pattern of behavior that they're not going to take on any kind of constructive feedback that might actually be valuable to them if they took some time to look at it. As I say, I make no judgment about that those people. That's that's for them. And they may get to a point in their life where they are ready to challenge some stuff and accept some feedback. They may not, and that's fine. But actually there is a there's a bit of a problem with the word feedback these days. So I'm thinking about a friend of mine who holds a middle management position in an organization and Her company claims to have a culture of feedback. And this feedback basically means that whatever she or her colleagues do, because it's not particularly about her, it's more about a number of people within the organization. They are being called to those meetings, which are called the feedback sessions. And they are being basically told that whatever they do, they do wrong. And she mentioned that she has to bounce off all this feedback to keep her sanity really because like otherwise she would start strongly believing that she is just 
terrible at everything that she does and she's not. Mm. So I, I think that the use of the word feedback and also the use of feedback as a tool can get deeply unhealthy. Unhealthy, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And my perspective is, is that feedback should be done from a position of permission mm-hmm. where we have asked for the feedback so we've given permission to the person to deliver that feedback or the person who has the feedback to offer asks can i give you some feedback so i've got that perspective that feedback should first of all be permission based from either whether you're asking it seeking it or offering it my perspective also is is that i came across the ceo of a big insurance company they have a platform for everyone to give feedback which ultimately goes to him and that's great and i'll come back to my technology just because you can doesn't mean you should it is is that when we deliver feedback to each other we are best owning our message and saying what i experience so aga what i experience is is that when you talk to me i feel and as opposed to saying you make me feel which is often the way that people deliver feedback and it's all about you you're making me do this rather than owning it and saying using the language of i i experience and when feedback is offered in that way so that it is owned by the giver of the feedback the person is able to be choiceful to receive it and understand it from the other's perspective rather than you made me feel at which point the shield goes up and it encourages us to be more defensive the problem with a lot of feedback is that it's casting guilt and that somehow we find ourselves in a culture that someone has to be guilty of whatever happened while like you said yourself we are complex creature and we are imperfect creatures and Maybe there is no guilt in the first place. It's just that there was some miscommunication or some crash, but it didn't come from a malicious intention. It just came from the fact that we're just different and imperfect. So in a way, I think that this feeling of not feeling good enough that you mentioned before also comes from the fact that a lot of companies have the culture of defining what good enough is rather than taking the enoughness of people into account which kind of comes to a point of getting people aligned rather than what another guest of ours said attuned so i think that there are different kinds of alignment one is alignment along the goals and the the vision that we have and the other is alignment of behavior that may actually be quite damaging because then you lose diversity and you basically make people become extremely homogeneous. So I'm just curious how you see that. Like, do you see this difference and how you think about it? It's a very long question, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to answer that question. So I think what is really, really helpful And I'm coming from an idealistic perspective here, and I know that this isn't realistic because when we're talking about organizations, we're talking about groups of people and we're talking about groups of people at various stages in their own personal development, their readiness to reflect upon their own practice or lack of readiness and their barriers and so forth. You know, in an ideal world, everyone in a leadership team, in a call center team, in a family, in a community group would be sharing their values and agreeing how do we as a group function as a group? What are our values? What are our accepted norms, our behavioral norms? And where are our red lines? And let's all give ourselves permission to deliver feedback and speak out when some of those red lines are crossed or we don't see those values being exhibited that's an ideal i'm not sure that it is really realistic because of organizations spend lots of money doing those 
workshops where they go off for a day for a weekend or used to go off for a day or for a weekend and you know and, and uh, now presumably they're doing workshops on zoom or teams and and coming up with those and agreeing those cultural norms and you will always have people within those groups who aren't fully at the same stage as others in terms of their readiness to accept their part in it i'm not sure if that answered your question it got me thinking <laughs> that, so that was that, a no then All right. <laughs> uh, no, it didn't answer completely in a sense <laughs> you got me there <laughs> i agree with you that and i see it happening that people are not quite ready to accept the norms and sometimes those norms are a little bit too black and white i would say i'm referring to my times at google where the statement isn't it evil would make or break every meeting really so like if someone said isn't it evil no matter what was being discussed the meeting was stopped and you would have to go and deliberate whether it was evil or not which in many cases made sense in some didn't make sense at all so you know like if you have the principles they also give you power and they become a bit of a power play within the organization if you keep on using them that way on the other hand i can see that if i work with people who share certain things with me it's just easier <laughs> so you know we we might be different but at least we kind of know where we are going together if you have a small organization this is kind of possible because people know each other and they regulate each other quite successfully often but when the organization grows suddenly this regulation is just gone and instead you get procedures and processes and stuff like this which never really regulate people in the same way and then this feeling of doing things together gets lost and of course i understand that the strategic vision is something that should serve as a tool for getting people aligned or attuned together but somehow i feel that that's not enough it's an important thing but it's not enough and i'm curious whether there are other things that can be added to this that are not being played as as a part of the power play but are really helping to keep people aligned or attuned again a very long question <laughs> mm, mm. so one of the bits that you said early on in that was making a comparison with small businesses and certainly my observation of small businesses is, is that the relationships are much closer and much more family orientated where people truly know your characteristics and what your buttons are and all of the blemishes around your personality and your behaviors and and so forth it's much harder to to know people in a larger organization it's much easier to hide and to mask some of our behaviors some of our insecurities and so forth i think in terms of answering your question about what the answer is for them i'm not really sure i've got that and i think that i think where i'm going to land on that is is to say that the more people that you have within a group within an organization within a team who are prepared to reflect upon themselves and invest some time in their leadership practice the better that doesn't answer the question about how to include those people um that aren't at that point where they're able to willing to ready to invest that time and take that risk and i'm uncomfortable then at the suggestion then the logical suggestion that would come out of that which is well then you know we don't recruit those people in, into our organizations i'm not sure if i'm answering your question but i think that the more people that we have around us who are prepared to do that self reflection the better i think i have an argument why what you feel just proposed might be practically enough mm-hmm. because it it feels to me like 
if we are optimizing, for lack of a better word, towards a group of people cooperating together better, if that's the, the outcome we are trying to achieve, it feels to me like if I narrow down the problem, just cooperating with one person, right? So there is a multitude of, of aspects that we kind of both show. And on top of that, it's not really black and white, whether we are compatible or not, right? So it's about grayscales. It's grayscales on many different dimensions. Another assumption here is that we are attuned to finding out deficiencies. So what doesn't work rather than the plethora of things that actually does work between any two mm -hmm. people and much more uh, in a group. So my, my running example is that I have worked with quite a few people whose behavior you would describe as arrogant. That was the, the reception of their feeling. But for me, if it's combined with absolutely top shelf expert knowledge, I can easily work with these people. Yeah. If the combination is not there, if someone who is really making me feel, so I'm trying to phrase it now in, in this feedbacky way. So, okay, so let me dig out of this because it's too, too difficult <laughs> to construct a sentence like this. If they are, they are arrogant and there is not much behind it, or at least it's even if it's kind of an average expertise, they really trigger me off. I mean, I, I just can't work with this kind of people. So if we agree that there is a multitude of dimensions at play and we are talking about grayscales on all of them, and it's difficult for us to take them apart, although our reaction to the set is very clear, then if every person is willing to accept feedback on those deficiencies that are easily picked up by others and work on them, maybe we don't have to take this whole thing apart in all these separate aspects and grade all of them. If it's enough, if we just commit to sanding off yeah. the rough edges, maybe that's it. Using a corporate speak, so leveraging the, the strengths of the subject matter experts is what I'm receiving from you there in terms of those who may be arrogant, but they bring an absolute knowledge, that top shelf expertise on that particular subject and have those rough edges and actually that's quite interesting because we quite often see that those are the people who when they get into leadership organizational leadership oh positions, you don't want to do that actually, yes. actually really really struggle with some yeah. of those those other things because their entire world has been about academic excellence and you know focusing on this one subject and becoming that subject matter expert that is you know, the, the belief that that is going to be enough to take them as far as they want to go. Mm. And yet, actually, the further you get in organizations, the less it is about being the subject matter expert and the more it is about all of those other things, the softer edges of the human experience. So you mean the difficult ones? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That makes sense. If you want to continue, you have to tackle the difficult problems, not only top shelf academic knowledge. In comparison, that's easy, right? <laughs> <laughs> there is something that I've been recently thinking a lot about, which is the difference between empathy and compassion. So there's this book that I recently read, which is called Against Empathy. Mm -hmm. It's written by Paul Bloom, who states that empathy is narrow-sighted. It shines narrow spotlight on people who are much like ourselves or who were kind to us one way or the other. And also empathy is about here and now. So basically you try to help or empathize with the person at the particular moment rather than think about them in what's good for them in the longer time span. And compassion seems to be, he talks about compassion, but I think that he talks about the construct of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. So basically that instead of a very simplistic way of thinking about empathy, you actually have a, a set of skills that you can apply, which is called the emotional intelligence that helps you deal with certain situations with a much more nuanced way. So I'm curious what you think about it. 
so certainly the way that we look at emotional intelligence, which is the way that Stephen Stein and his colleagues have formulated it with a, his Canadian company, MHS, is that empathy is just one subcomponent of emotional intelligence. Other aspects, like I've mentioned, social responsibility and self-regard have been ones that I've, I've talked about, but also things like problem solving. We're dealing with problems when emotions are involved. Stress tolerance and flexibility are all aspects of emotional intelligence. I think for me, coming back to the empathy, compassion thing, my interpretation of the two words is that empathy is is what we experience for the individual. Compassion is what we experience for the group. Okay. If English were your uh, first language, you would most probably have slightly different or very different interpretations of what those two words mean. So we all... In our first language, our second, third languages interpret words differently. And I don't want to rubbish him. I will simply say that we could probably all make arguments such as that on the nuances between the um, between the two. Mm-hmm. For me, empathy is part of emotional intelligence, uh, along with all of those other things that, that I've been referencing. Is it the most important one? No. What is the most important one? Is there a most important one? So I think my position, if you're asking me for a position on that, uh, is, is that overall emotional intelligence is really, really helpful to have a reasonable level of emotional intelligence or even a high level is really, really important. When you start breaking it down, it then comes into the context. You know, what context do you find at this moment in your life, in your career? What is the aspect of it that you will benefit from leveraging or from working with. So if we just go back to those subject matter experts, you know, where to know one thing and know one thing really, really well, when we start then becoming leaders of teams, leaders of people, influencers, empathy is absolutely one of them, social responsibility is another one our interpersonal relationships is another aspect of it so i think it it depends on the context mm-hmm. to answer your question about is there one that's most important the overall is the easy answer <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then it depends it depends on the person and what context they're in mm-hmm. when you think about emotional intelligence you think about it as something that we are given and then we have to find the best ways to use it to improve us as leaders or actually the emotional intelligence itself is something that can be worked on and improved or like aspects of it at least yeah so absolutely it can be and you know and, and you know we've got evidence that demonstrates that it is absolutely possible you can quantify your emotional intelligence or someone's emotional intelligence and then you can go through a, a developmental program and you know and this is our bread and butter stuff and then quantify it further on down the road after some work and you can see that it has changed it has altered and the person is having a different world experience a different human experience as, as a result You know, where does our emotional intelligence come from? Well, it's our it's our map of the world. It, is it Freud? Was Freud right? Was Jung right? Was, you know, was Ellis right? You know, Ellis says that effectively we were born as empty vessels and then we were foolish enough to listen to our parents to, and take on what they put onto us. But um, but our life experiences is what shapes us and ultimately what influences I'm not going to say it absolutely causes it what influences our emotional intelligence. I want to leave wiggle room around that, if I may. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to look at the opposite of the emotional intelligence, which is probably status and ego. Leaders struggle with these things a lot. So how do you see them as blockers to develop your emotional intelligence? To develop one's emotional intelligence, one really benefits from putting ego aside and our status aside. And this is where, for me, it comes to the one-to-one work rather than the, the group work, the, the creating the environment for them to be vulnerable with themselves and with me or my, or my colleagues 
in a one-to-one -one context where that status and ego is left at the door. If they choose to pick it up on the way out, uh, you know, that that's fine. Hopefully, they pick less of it up over time and have less of a personal fixation about status and ego. They want to be driven, um, career advancement, great, I applaud that. If it is how they have their measure of success about status, I'm not sure that that's helpful without getting too deeply philosophical. You know, how does that really matter at the end of the day? You know, and I think about Covey's funeral scenario from his Seven Habits book where you've got those people writing your, you know, you have to write the eulogies for them. So how does status actually really matter when someone's reading your eulogy, giving your eulogy at your funeral? I'm not sure that it really does. I think it's much more about the human experience that others have had of us rather than whether we were COO, CEO, chairman, whatever. But yet, somehow, especially when people go into this leadership path, the status is is something they strive for. So what's the mental model there that, that's prevailing that just makes it happen? So is it a leadership path or is it a career path? Probably career, you're right. So, you know, coming back, leadership is about self, it's about family, friends, community and work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, they might choose to have a career path where they are in a position to influence others. That can be a conscious choice. People do choose to have those kinds of careers. But otherwise, it does come back to status and ego. And that's not about leadership. That's about power. Interesting. Mm -hmm. It's double interesting because you refuse to define uh, leadership. So we are kind of completely <laughs> avoiding the, uh, the comparisons between power and leadership and this kind of stuff. But that's fine. For me, leadership is a really broad topic. And, you know, and there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of books that have been written on the topic. So, you know, and you go on LinkedIn and you see these posts of the three things you need to be an excellent <laughs> leader. And it's like, I really don't know what leadership is, you know, which is what I said at the beginning. Sometimes I really don't recognize it mm -hmm. as leadership. It's much more about the human experience. If you were to really push me for a definition, I would say that leadership is about the human experience and how we experience ourselves and experience others and how others experience us. But maybe just for the sake of this conversation, if we narrow the scope of the leadership a little bit for a moment, because Aga, you ask about this power and this indeed kind of reflects, at least it's the best observable in a work environment. So if all the five dimensions of leadership that you mentioned, just for a moment, we picked only at work. Yeah. So there is something about the word leadership in the context of work that I'm not there to just do my part. As a very junior person, I'm here basically to learn. This is my first job. I want to learn. So it's fine for me to be given, you know, simple tasks, just like apprenticeship. Do a simple task, do this and this, and then you will develop some, some basic skills. So if I'm that person, there is not much of this work-related leadership in my role. I disagree. Oh, okay. I absolutely disagree. So that very junior entry-level career position, they can absolutely demonstrate leadership, leadership without authority, things that they are observing, things that they are experiencing, they can and would benefit from exercising their voice. They might not be in the right environment that enables them and encourages them to do that. That's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. For me, absolutely, they're able to demonstrate or they have the opportunity to demonstrate leadership at that very entry level as leading without authority. I agree with this one, but it even reinforces the point that I was trying to make that leadership is in the end about influencing other people one way or another. Mm -hmm. So this is where the connection with power somehow is, but maybe when we say power, it's a very particular way of influencing people. And to do this from the position of leadership, just giving good feedback, even if you are most junior person, you can always give a good feedback. That would be something uh, positive. It's influence, but not power. 
mm-hmm. makes sense for you? Absolutely. Yeah. That kind of connects with what another guest of ours, April Mills, said that it's not about driving people, it's about driving change. And she makes it very clear the distinction that often people in power within organizations, they think that if they force people to do certain things, they make them do things for their own good, no less. Yes, <laughs> the situation would change for the better. So the change that they or transformation that they envisioned will come to life. And that never happens. So she is making this very beautiful distinction for me, at least, that if you are the first one to run and say like, hey, let's do this thing and it's like going to be cool. And then you are the exemplar of that change. Then people follow you and therefore you become the leader rather than if you are standing there with a whip and just kind of whipping them to change in a way you envisioned. Mm. I think change comes with power. Transformation comes with leadership. Interesting. Can you explain a bit more? That's just come into my head listening to you talk there. And I think what was going through my head in in that moment was that the stroke of a pen power to change something, transformation, my interpretation of the word is a much more evolutionary altering of a state within an organization. And whilst that's evolutionary, that might be quite rapid. It might be quite slow, but it's a transformation. And that that's where people are more willing and wanting to do the work to do it because they want to follow a leader. They're inspired by a leader as opposed to change, which is the power of the stroke of a pen to say it's going to be this or that. So if you were to look at the leaders today, that the leaders that you are working with, what is the most daring thing for them to do? <laughs> so the most daring thing is, is to actually do that self-reflection, is to examine themselves and to be prepared to take some risk in experimenting and trying different things, different stories, different beliefs, different behaviors. That's, for me, the most daring thing, that readiness to look at themselves as opposed to the easy thing, which is I know all of the answers, I've read all of the books, I've got my MBA, and this is what we're going to do, and I'm I'm leading because I have authority. So I think that the most daring thing is to do that self-reflection. Mm-hmm. I'd go back to my kitchen. Yes, of course. I often think that leadership, leaders who cook, I often think about leaders and leaders who cook and their approach in the kitchen and their approach to food and preparation of food is often very similar to their approach to leadership and organizations and how they show up at work. So I think the daring for me is is being willing to try new concepts, being open to experiment, knowing that it might end up in the bin. It might not be palatable. You might not repeat the exercise, the meal that you've created again. You might next time just do something slightly different and tweak it and learn from the experience. So I think the daring is is about not following the recipe books and working with what is in terms of what's in the kitchen, what food is there, and then work with what is and learn and evolve. One of my colleagues says, be prepared to fail, you know, be comfortable with the fact that you might not actually eat what you produce. And that's okay. If you were to recommend a book that is an inspiration to be a daring leader or to live a daring life. Could be inspiration, could be a manual, could be fictional book, could be one of those business practices. things. Anything that comes to mind, but just one, because you already mentioned a few books, so you probably Mm. have a bunch of them in your head. (laughs) So the extra challenge, just one. So I think that the imposter phenomenon by Dr. Pauline Rose uh, Clance uh, would be a good place to start. That was written back in the 1970s. 
I don't believe it's in print now. I know that when I bought my copy of it, I had to seek out a probably a third or fourth hand version of it. She talks about the imposter phenomenon. Most commonly, it's talked about as the imposter syndrome. That's quite an interesting place for people to to start being daring and asking themselves some of the questions that's in that. Phil, thank you so much for this amazing conversation. My uh, pleasure. It was such a pleasure. <laughs> Always a pleasure, yes. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for having me. You've made me think this morning and that's a good thing. So thank you very much indeed. <laughs> <laughs> for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. What goes in must come out.